Welcome back. We're talking today with an old friend of mine from my days in the math department at UNC Wilmington. His name is Father Gregory Plow, and he was a student of mine in the 1990s. Uh, he was studying math education, and I had the great good fortune of teaching him some of his math courses and also observing him teach. I will go on record as saying Father Gregory, as he is known now, was one of the best and most memorable students I taught, and he is one of the finest and most committed believers I know. Following graduation, he went on to teach math for a couple of years, but then followed his calling to become a Franciscan friar from the Third Order Regular of St. Francis. His province sponsors two universities, and he is director of the post-novitiate formation program located in Washington, D.C., uh, preparing friars for the permanent brotherhood and priesthood. Welcome to the podcast, Father Gregory. Thank you so much, Dr. Schatzberger, Paul. It's great to be with you, and you too, Scott. Uh, so, as the name of the podcast indicates, uh, we're interested in talking about moments that matter in your life uh, and how they have directed or redirected you to this point. So let's start with math and teaching math. Uh, where did that love come from? Well, uh, it's, I was pretty good at math from, I realized from the, uh, from probably the four, third or fourth grade on and, uh, and enjoyed it and, um, you know, got involved in, you know, I was in the, when they started doing tracking back in the day, uh, I was in like the higher level track. And then when I was a senior in high school, um, I was in a calculus class and, um, and, my professor, our teacher, um, Mr. Tomberg, he had, was going to be absent today. And I'm not sure what, ha- you know, happened in the way of substitutes, but he had asked me to teach just the one, the lesson for the one class that I was, you know, that I was in just to get up out of my seat and teach the lesson he had prepared just for our class, not for the whole day. And uh, I was like, sure. So he just taught me the lesson ahead of time and I did it. And it went well. It was, uh, it, I remember even what the lesson was to this day. It was so long ago. Um, it was a, le- it was the slow way of doing derivatives, you know, not the, not the shortcut way. And mm-hmm. I, and it was so fascinating. So anyway, uh, and then at that point I realized, wow, I might have a knack for this because everybody in the class seemed to get it. Now, of course, this is an advanced class. So, you know, you could probably have Bugs Bunny up there teaching, you know, <laughs> the lesson, but, uh, but I felt like I accomplished something. So, then I decided to, well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll look at being a math teacher. And I, and in fact, that was what I had intended to do as I entered as a freshman from when you and I met at University of North Carolina at Wilmington. And uh, from, you know, my experience at UNCW studying secondary math education was excellent. Um, Wonderful professors, including yourself and, uh, and just, um, and just, uh, and then of course, you know, after I graduated, I did teach for a couple years in high school as I had wanted um, until I finally followed, um, you know, God's nagging at me to, in my, in what ended up becoming my vocation as a Franciscan friar and priest. Well, I can tell our audience, I really enjoyed teaching you uh, in some of your math courses, especially math history, uh, because I knew you really got the whole connection between math and faith. 
when we talked about uh, the giants of mathematics who were also believers. Uh, and I don't want to get too far down this rabbit hole um, and for fear of losing our audience, but uh, can you talk about your impressions of the connection between faith and math specifically and academics in general? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I, well, one, one way I might sum it up real quick is uh, uh, to start is just, um, you know, I, I did also get an, a statistics minor at UNCW and an art history minor. Two very closely related fields, by I the way. I did not there's know lot, that. <laughs> yes, there's a lot of cross-references between those two disciplines. And, and when I was in art history, um, I discovered uh, some things philosophically that were portrayed in art, in Renaissance art, that um, in which uh, you had um, Aristotle recommended that that all of his students of philosophy, or anyone who would study philosophy for that matter, study mathematics first. And, um, and, you know, part of that is because, and we have to study philosophy first before we study theology to be priests. And, uh, and part of the reason for mathematics preceding philosophy is just because of the discipline and the way that uh, mathematics works for the mind. Um, but, um, you know, but I, I think that, uh, but I think that, you know, there's much more to you know, to this uh, elevating way in which math can lead to philosophy, of course, which can lead to theology, as St. Thomas Aquinas would say. Um, and that is that, you know, in math, it's a very calculated discipline, and, and it's very exacting. Uh, you know, the whole goal most of the time in mathematics is to find an answer. And, you know, we came across this class is this a good time to talk about the axiomatic systems class? Oh, sure, yeah. Does that help answer the next question? Okay. So I did take this one class with Dr. Smith, axiomatic systems, which is basically for our listeners just um, in, uh, a, a course that uh, has advanced level proofs. And, um, and one of the things that we learned was that uh, there are some things in mathematics we know to be true, but we can never actually do the empirical proof that they are true, which seems so counterintuitive, especially to a mathematician. Um, another similar type of mind-blowing experience in this course was that there are, in fact, a way, there is a way uh, has been to prove that there are different sizes of infinity, which again, to the average listener, is you know is hard to comprehend it's even hard really for mathematicians to comprehend but there is a simple proof to actually show that um and these things you know kind of transcend the boundaries of mathematics being this confined um logical analytical system that ends with a conclusion and then we can wipe our hands at the end of the day uh, it shows that there's this greater knowledge uh there's this greater uh, um information that exists out there that's beyond human capacity to really know or understand. And um, when I first was learning this, I had developed this God of the gaps kind of philosophy, if you will, which I don't, which is not according to, you know, Christian doctrine, but it is a way of, it was a way, it was a way in which I could come to say, okay, we can know all these things. And then these one, these little things we don't understand, 
you know, God's present there. Of course, we believe as Christians that God transcends everything, all the things we know and don't know. But, but you know, these, these little things that's crept in of, um, of, of being just beyond ourselves pointed, to, pointed the way to a higher being, uh, uh, somebody beyond it all. And, um, and that's where, like, I started to really try and um, wed the, uh, you know, these whole, these, these concepts of faith and reason. Uh, at the same time, this is the last thing I'll, point I'll say on this, is at the same time, Pope John Paul II came out in 1996, I believe it was, with a document, the highest level of teaching that a pope can come out with called an encyclical and uh, it was the name of this document is very long. It is called Fides et Ratio, the Latin phrase for faith and reason. And so it's a great read for anybody, even if you're not Catholic, especially for Christian scientists, uh, just to see how faith and reason are not contradictory to each other and that they go hand in hand and can be intertwined. And so that document really helped me uh, contextualize a lot of what I was experiencing in my growth in the faith uh, and uh, my growth in the discipline of mathematics and, and, uh, and studies. That's so awesome. Um, yeah, now I have to uh, say to our audience a little bit of a sidebar here. Um, I knew Greg as a student, but I knew him in other, you know, venues as well. Um, we had a faculty group that used to get together at UNC Wilmington almost every lunchtime and played hearts. And this was one of my cherished experiences uh, from my time at UNC Wilmington. Um, but it was very unusual that uh, Greg was one of the only, if not the only, student who played with us. Uh, and I think that speaks very highly of, you know, the STEAM's the esteem of the faculty. Uh, one of the fondest memories I have of you, Greg, is that, um, Father Gregory, is uh, that right before your graduation, uh, you gave us some laminated playing cards that you thought kind of represented our character and our impact on you. And you should know that I still have those cards and they are a pre precious possession of mine. And in fact, I have them with me. Don't, don't show them to me. Don't show them yet. I want to, I think... I, I was thinking about which cards I gave you because oh, I remember okay. I All especially right. chose. And did I give you the ace and the jack? You gave me an ace. Okay. The ace kicker. I knew that. Okay. What was the other one I gave you there? Well, you gave me the ace of hearts um, because you said it represented me being your, the ace of the math department. Yes, that's um, true. Yes. But then you gave me the two also the two of hearts. Um, so uh, you say, I thought I'd give you a break. <laughs> oh, that's right. Um, and, and I should explain to the, oh, and here it is. Greg, just so oh you know. my gosh. Um, I can't believe. Oh. <laughs> um, you should be impressed by the way that I knew which box this was in. Um, but anyway, I, I should tell the audience that in the game of hearts, if you don't know, the whole point is to not take points. And uh, so if you have a two, you get to duck other cards uh, that potentially could give you points. So, um, and then, he, then you say, thank you for everything. Sincerely, Greg Plow, 99. Okay. Um, so I was wondering if, if you have any uh, fond memories of 
uh, playing with that group of faculty. Oh, yeah. Yes, I do very much. And, uh, and I, I, yeah, not a long period of time goes by when I won't recollect that, that experience. That was a great blessing for me. I just, yeah, I mean, I think it goes to show that not all math, mathematicians are nerds and we know how to have fun too a little bit. Absolutely. <laughs> but, uh, and we would just joke around with each other and it was just, yeah, I, I felt really included. I think it shows, and I, and I think it shows you and the other math department professors ability to really engage and, uh, you know, um, and encounter the students. Um, you know, I think there might be some faculty that would, um, would, uh, go, you know, go into the faculty dining rooms and not allow students in, but you all, uh, allowed me in and, and really it was, it was a great blessing for me for sure. And, um, and I kind of wonder how some of those professors are doing maybe after we finish recording, I'd mm-hmm. like to catch up in here, but, um, but yeah. yes, it was a great, thank you for that. Mm-hmm. And, and some days, uh, I will also say we got up to, I think maybe 10, 11, 12 players. It was insane oh, to yeah. play with, to play hearts with that many people, sometimes with two decks. Um, but anyway, well, uh, once graduation passed. And- oh, let me just say this real quick to Paul. No. Uh, hearts is something because of having played with you all hearts is something I brought into the Franciscans. Nice. And I've taught nice. some of the friars to play. Now they don't play with me too often because of how competitive I am, but, um, but, but they, but they, when they do play, uh, you know, I tell them always about our time together, uh, playing with my time playing with the math professors. And then, um, and then, uh, you know, when they beat me, they really earn it. They, they brag about it for a while. It's like when I would beat Dr. Smith. That's right. I would talk about that for days. Um, so once graduation passed and you began teaching, uh, I will admit to you my surprise at your transition from uh, teaching to studying for the priesthood. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your faith journey and how you knew you should pursue becoming a Franciscan friar? Sure. Sure. So uh, I would like to share with, with you that by starting back in college a little bit, um, or actually started in high school. I went on a high school retreat. I was raised, born and raised Catholic. Okay. And I grew up, grew up in North Carolina. I, you know, I did go to Catholic youth group, but most of my friends uh, were, were not Catholic Christians, Protestants of different uh, denominations and non-denominational. Of course, going to UNCW, same thing. I was in these two ecumenical Christian groups, which I really enjoyed very much. In addition to going to the Catholic Newman Center. And, uh, and when I was in high school, I went on a retreat in which I really encountered God in a very personal way. I encountered the love of God that was, you know, overwhelming and, and very powerful experience. And, and so at that point, you know, it wasn't just I believe in God or this is what I was raised with. At this point, it was, you know, I'm walking with God. I'm following him. I'm loving him. It's a relationship. He's a person person of Jesus Christ. And, um, and then, you know, when I got to college, I will have to admit, you know, this isn't confession here, but uh, I will have to admit that I did go at going to a big public state school. I did, uh, you know, I did stray from the belief and the practice of my faith for at least the first year, it may have been the first three semesters. Um, I, I made a lot of bad choices and I, and I also subscribed, unfortunately, to some of the, uh, <clears throat> to some of the like kind of moral, more moral relativistic 
things that can be taught in a lot of state school philosophy uh, classes. And, um, and uh, yeah, and I even was put on academic probation that first year. I didn't tell you that. I don't think you did. Yeah, I don't think I knew yeah. that one either. Yeah, I had one semester to pull it up, and I did. And actually, I, don't, I, I pulled it out, too. You pulled out your cards. I found an old piece of paper, which is a graph of my climbing GPA. I'd set goals for myself, and mm-hmm. I ended up graduating with, I think, like a 3.2 or something, which being on academic probation after one year is pre- pretty good. So, I, I yeah, so, like, I – I kind of got my stuff together after that first year. And at the same time, you know, I had met a really good friend of mine named David Myers, who is a, a collegiate swimmer, Southern Baptist. And um, oh, no, I'm sorry, Baptist. He wasn't Southern Baptist. And he um, uh, and he and I just formed a friendship and we started sharing our faith together. And um, and then you know, growing that way in fellowship. And then I had other Christian friends in those ecumenical groups I mentioned to you. And then you, Dr. Paul, uh, you know, just just the faith that you modeled for me as a man, who's a, as a Christian yourself, and then also, you know, as, a, as someone who has, you know, some gray matter up in here in his head, you know, and, uh, and you know, I said, wow, this faith, you know, this can, this can work. You know, you can be smart and you can... Uh, believe in God, you know, I think the world a lot of times wants to tell us that faith is for the weak, you know, and, and stuff. So at least that's something I've kind of bought into. And so, um, so, you know, all these things are, these are all the moments uh, of um, the moments that matter, right? The, the, the poor GPA and I have to get my act together, meeting Dave Myers and starting friendship with him with you, Paul, starting a relationship with you. That was very mentoring, if you will. Um, these were all moments that mattered in my college career. Uh, I dated, uh, I started dating a very good Catholic girl. And, um, and uh, that was a moment that mattered as well to see this, how a good relationship can be based, a dating relationship, romantic relationship can be based in, in the Lord. And then, um, and then, you know, as I was dating her more and more, I started, uh, you know, thinking about maybe I will marry her someday. You know, I mean, that's sort of the natural progression when you date someone for a couple of years, right? And so, I, but I said, you know, that's a long time to be married to someone and um, <laughs> for the rest of your life, you know? And so uh, that's what we, that's what we promise, right? When people get married. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and so I said, well, if I'm going to do something for the rest of my life, like I, I had, if you, I don't know if you remember, but I prayed about, whether I should take a job at one school or another. And I came to you mm-hmm. for advice yeah. and, and you're like, let's pray about it. You know, and I prayed about it and, and I chose one or the other with the direction of God. And then I said, well, I, if I'm going to do something more permanent, I need to pray to God on this one, you know? <laughs> so, so I said, so I prayed about it. And of course, you know, you're discerning a lifelong vocation at that point. And so I, and as a, as the mathematician that I was, you'll appreciate this. You know, when you have a problem to solve, you look at all the different things <laughs> that uh, that that the variables can be, right? And then you sort it out, defining the different variables. And so that's what I did. I looked at married life. I looked at single life. You know, we have the priesthood in the Catholic Church. You can be a permanent deacon and married. 
you know, um, and all these different things. Religious life, which is a brother instead of a priest. So all these different options. And I started researching them and praying about them and seeking counsel from wise people, as the scripture says to do. And, um, and it was, uh, and, you know, that, that was filled with moments that matter, you know, you know, that four year discernment process from after my junior year, the summer of 1997, until I entered in 2001, after I had taught then for two years. So, um, so that's kind of how I came into that. It was, you know, and uh, yeah, I think the two years of teaching, I did not leave teaching for all of you teachers out there who might be listening to this. I did not leave teaching because I was burned out or I didn't like it. Teaching is a great profession and I loved it, but it was, God was calling me to this. And actually as God would have it, I feel like I'm a lifelong educator. You know, um, um, my uncle says I have more degrees than a thermometer and, uh, and, uh, you know, and, and I just do now, even in this role here, you know, with being a formator for these young men, you know, teaching them. And, and I feel like I'm a lifelong student as well. So, so you never really, even I gave up my formal teaching job there, you know, as a Christian, there's these, we, we are in continuous conversion. We may have a may, one moment of conversion, one big moment that matters when we accept Jesus Christ, right? But then the rest of our life, is filled with continuous conversion in which we have to continue to seek him in everything. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Well, you uh, talked about moments that led you to becoming um, a Franciscan friar. Pick Mm -hmm. up there. What has happened since that journey began? Did you say 2001? Yes. What, I guess, um, for those who are listening and unfamiliar with the process of becoming a Franciscan friar, what did that look like? And, and what's that journey been like since then? Yeah, sure. Um, so just a, just a little bit of background. Um, you know, most time when people think of Catholic priests, they, they might think of the, um, the, the man who wears a, a, the clerical suit, you know, the black suit with the white tab collar, like a lot of other denominations uh, clergy will wear. Uh, and those are those in the Catholic Church, those are diocesan priests, and they're usually geographically bound in their diocese and uh, don't ever leave. They might be transferred from one church to another by their bishop, who is their immediate boss. Uh, but um, and they don't choose their bishop. The bishop is chosen for them by the pope. Um, then in the Catholic Church, we also have these religious orders or congregations and these are groups of men or women. There are no co-ed ones. Men or women who live in monasteries or friaries or convents together in common. And they, uh, they do, like the, the priests, like myself, do a lot of the same work in ministry that a diocesan priest will do. I'll celebrate mass. I will uh, hear confessions. I'll baptize. I'll preach, do funerals and all the marriages, all those things. Um, but we, uh, but we um, profess additional vows of poverty, chastity, obedience to God. Instead of making those kinds of promises to a bishop, we profess them to God, which is, is a, um, uh, and we uh, live in common. And then, uh, and then so there are many, many of the different groups around the world. Of course, you're talking, you know, you know, the Benedictines, 
I'm a Franciscan. There's Dominicans, Jesuits. Pope Francis is a Jesuit, so he's a religious, technically. He was not a diocesan priest. And, uh, and so I was discerning. So going back to that mathematical kind of systematic method of discerning, discerning. And let me be clear, too. My method of discerning included prayer. Okay, it included listening to the Lord. If only it were so easy as solving a math problem. I mean, I think, boy, it wouldn't have taken me four years. But, um, but uh, you know, in, in doing that, you know, I looked at the diocesan priesthood and I looked at the religious life and I realized that God was, in fact, calling me to be in religious life in a community. And then uh, from there, it was a matter of where. <laughs> and then and, and I found my home where God was calling me to be a Franciscan. And of course, there are many, many, many Franciscan groups around the world. And I had to pick one. And, and I found my home with this particular one precisely because, in short, our major charism is continuous conversion that I spoke of earlier, which I really is at my heart. Thanks for listening to Moments That Matter, a podcast that looks at the moments in our lives that come along from time to time that have consequences long after the moment, especially those moments that have to do with the choice of vocation. In his book, Let Your Life Speak, Listening for the Voice of Vocation, Parker Palmer speaks of a clearness committee in the Quaker tradition, wherein a group of older, wiser people ask questions of someone considering a life choice as a way of clarifying the next step. We may not meet with a committee about these big decisions, but we all have these critical junctures in our lives, which we can think of as clearness committee moments. We need to pay attention to these moments because they are profound and potentially life-altering. We'll relay stories from our lives and interview others about theirs, especially noting the clearness committee moments, those we choose to recognize and those that were sadly ignored, those decisions that were made with God in mind and those that were not. Our hope is that these podcasts will cause you to think of the same kind of moments in your life with new clarity.